0: Psalm number 214, Jonathan has asked that we mark that, 214, Trust and Obey. Many of those songs that you and I just sang together, it seems, touch in such a magnificent way the very topic of faith, the concept that really will be the bedrock of our discussion for the next few moments this morning. It is so good that God has blessed us with the opportunity and yea, the high honor of assembling like this. And I trust that as we appreciate, what better way could there possibly be to start a new week to appreciate this first day directed in in this particular activity, to worship God in spirit and in truth. You noticed in the reading just a moment ago, drawn from the later stages of the Old Testament, the just shall live by his faith. I would invite us to cast a spotlight upon that section of Habakkuk for the next few moments this morning and use it, of course, to bring us to appreciate even greater the matters contained in the heart of the New Testament. Some introductory thoughts uh, certainly seem appropriately to be these. As you know, in our reading through the Word of God this year, we are now roughly at four-fifths, almost 80%. But in so doing, you might remember of late, much of our reading has really centered on the latter books of the Old Testament, the so-called minor prophets. Sometimes that name is a bit of a challenge, isn't it? If you and I aren't careful, we might be tempted to think minor means less important or minor means less worthy in terms of God's revelation. But someone long ago just named those prophets that way. It's not that they're any less inspired, it's just their books are shorter Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and those are long, but Habakkuk and Malachi and Nahum and some of them are short, but they're all the same, the Word of God. It is the case with respect to Habakkuk this this morning that I would invite you to look with me at some of the features found in that little book as it touches the subject of faith. The just shall live by his faith. As you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, these towering figures of faithfulness Many times we can appreciate in them the steadfastness and the determination that you and I are called upon to exemplify in our service to God even today. No, that will certainly be true of Habakkuk. Let's begin our lesson then this morning by looking at the setting for the book, appreciating the context in which this verse is found, and then use it to appreciate the latter applications as we motivate through the rest of the lesson. First of all, the setting. The book of Habakkuk is very short. It only has three chapters, the sum total of only 65 verses. And yet, as you contemplate the occurrence of those three chapters and the circumstances that serve as the backdrop to them, one of the first things you and I come face to face with is the opening chapter is a firm declaration by God to Habakkuk. And if I may paraphrase, God tells Habakkuk, Babylon is coming. And my people, Judah, are going to in fact be overwhelmed and overtaken and defeated by these Babylonians. Let me just select verse 6 and ask you to look at chapter 1. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, the word I refers to God. I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. God rather quickly informs Habakkuk, this prophet, this individual interested in the ways of God, and he tells him, these Babylonians, they're bitter, they're hasty, they're violent, they're cruel, but they're coming. And not only are they coming, they're going to defeat my people, Judah, the very people who are supposedly mine. As you can immediately tell, Habakkuk was confused. Upon hearing that kind of message, immediately Habakkuk then asked this question of God. God, how can you let this be? I know that the people of Judah are not faithful, and I know that they're not the best people in the world, but let's face it, they're better than the Babylonians. These Babylonians are ungodly. They're idolatrous. They are given to immorality, and you're going to let them defeat your own people? Habakkuk didn't understand. Habakkuk found himself in a place where he needed a heavy dose of faith. He needed a heavy dose of appreciation of trustworthiness in the God of heaven. He had just been given a message that he didn't understand. It didn't make sense to him. God, how can this be? The last few verses of chapter 1 highlight the interesting aspect of of his relationship, his trustworthiness as it begins to develop. You'll notice the next comment is this one. After his statement of not understanding, he then says, I'm going to wait for God to reply. I want to hear God explain. I want to hear that which God has to say relative to this. And so as chapter 2 opens, notice his mentality. That is Habakkuk's. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower, and will watch to see what he, that's God, will say unto me, and what I shall answer when I am reproved. You and I must at least admire that Habakkuk, when he didn't understand, he didn't run roughshod over what God had said. He said, I'm going to patiently wait and hear what God has to say to me. In chapter 2, verse number 2, here was God's reply. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. God said, I've said what I'm going to say, Habakkuk. Write it, make it plain, so that everybody that hears, everybody that becomes aware of it will immediately leap into action and run with respect to that which God has decreed. Babylon is coming. Write the vision and make it plain. Among other things, you and I can immediately tell that that is a rather innocent statement about the plainness of God's Word. God meant both Habakkuk and the people to understand exactly what it said. It wasn't meant to be confusing. It wasn't intended to be a great leap of misunderstanding. God's Word isn't ambiguous either. Write the vision, Habakkuk, and make it plain. You'll notice it is in that very context. Verse number 4 now appears. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. God makes a comment about the unuprightness of some in the area, the Babylonians, if you will. But then He makes the comment, the just shall live by his faith. As you and I seek to develop that somewhat more thoroughly and powerfully, Let's at least overview the rest of the book so we have it all in an easy appreciation. Beginning in verse 5 onward in chapter number 2, God now one by one begins to address the aspects of ancient Babylon. God says, indeed they're coming, but don't think they're going to escape judgment either. In fact, He pronounces five woes, W-O-E-S, upon ancient Babylon. And just a few of them I've chosen to list for you. God says, I'll judge them for their violence. I'll judge them for their idolatry. I'll judge them for their drunkenness. I'll judge them for the cruelty with which they not only deal with God's people, the people of Judah, but yea, with other nations. God says, it may be for now they will overrun Judah, but I'm going to judge them too in time. And for all these reasons, they're also going to meet me in judgment. Maybe in light of all that, the last comment is this. What, did, what impact did these words from God have on Habakkuk? We noted earlier in chapter 1, he was confused. He didn't understand how it could be that God could allow Babylon to defeat his own people. I would point out just a few words which I think are so meaningful. And I think they should mean a great deal to you and to me as well. Though he started out in that circumstance, look at verse 20 of chapter 2. But the Lord is in His holy temple... Let all the earth keep silence before Him. We sang a song in our songbook not too long ago where that verbatim statement is the very thrust of all that that song is. The Lord is in His holy temple. Habakkuk came to appreciate the fact that despite what he thought was confusing, God always does and knows what is best, and man needs to just keep quiet and serve God. Be faithful to him. Notice chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy. Here was Habakkuk, that man who at first was a bit perplexed, now pleading with God. Chapter 3, verse 2. Revive thy work. God, I want your work to... Be pursued. I want your work to pronounce. I want your work to be glorified. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. Not only that, look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. We find a great deal of positive spirit and positive appreciation relative to the nature of what changed in Habakkuk. As you and I think about this man, Habakkuk, this prophet, why don't we devote the rest of our lesson then to thinking about the just shall live by his faith and see what implications there is in that for you and for me today. I would submit that one of the first observations that certainly is worthy of note is this. You and I know so often the Old Testament is quoted in the heart of the New Testament. So many times... This verse that you and I have chosen, that I have chosen, I suppose I should say, as the lesson text, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Three times. I would invite us, among other things, to notice the context in which they occur and let them speak to us so greatly about the attribute of the just walking by faith. Let's, in fact, begin our next study by this. The just shall live by his faith. As you look at that, what does this word faith connote? What does it mean in this particular place? The original Hebrew word that's translated faith literally means steadfastness. It literally has behind it the thought of firmness and fidelity. Absolute commitment to that which is its object. The immediate comment that seemingly is so appropriate is this one. You and I live in a world where the religious community has hijacked the word faith and asserted it to mean that which it never means in the Bible. Isn't it true that so many think that faith is no more than a mental affirmation, a cerebral understanding of something? When whether it be Old or New Testament, faith always meant much more than that. Faith, as we can see here, is unwavering dedication. It is a commitment among all things else to that which again is its object. As you and I develop that more thoroughly, didn't the New Testament writers in fact amplify this in marvelous order? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You and I can see in reality to faith This confidence in that which the physical eye cannot see. The understanding that those are really the way that things are. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence, that is to say, that which is, the assurance of that which isn't seen. So many things immediately come before your mind and mine. We know so well that we read in the Bible of a place called heaven. You and I have never seen it with the physical eye. We read also about a place called hell, and we've never seen it with the unaided eye. But yet, through the avenue and the appreciation of faith, we are absolutely convicted beyond any doubt that such places do exist in terms of the other ways of life. You and I know that, for instance, there is an attribute called the church, important, vitally so essential without question. And yet when you and I ask about the bedrock as to why that is that way, we know why, because God has said so. The just shall live by His faith. No wonder as we give contemplation to that matter in faith, think about some of the developments that in Hebrews 11 in which that word is defined in an operational way. Abel. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Now, how did faith have any part to play in that? We remember from Genesis chapter 4 that God had specified in terms of offerings, and Cain did that which was inappropriate in the sense that he left out some things. But Abel did what God said. Notice that by faith, Abel offered the more excellent sacrifice. He did, unwaveringly, what God commanded. Not many verses later, verse number 7 of Hebrews 11, discussion is found concerning Noah. You and I recall and what a tremendous Old Testament figure he was. God commanded Noah to construct an ark, a vessel, a large vessel at that. Because I'm going to bring a flood of waters, God said, a flood like has never been before and shall never be again. Noah had the nerve, the faith, the conviction to trust what God said, and he built the ark. He didn't cut any corners, if you please. He didn't make any loopholes. He did exactly what God said, the justially by his faith. Had you or I been the one living in that era, and God had said, take 120 years and build a vessel, would you and I have done it? Or would we have offered objections? Would we have said, God, I don't understand. it. not there another way? A better plan, an alternate opportunity. And yet, Noah did none of that. Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. So did he, to quote Genesis 6.22. As you and I think more about this attribute of faith and the way the Hebrews chapter 11 presents it, look at what perhaps comes next. Verse 6 of that same chapter, "...but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him." In light of the definition you and I just noted earlier for faith, this unwavering dedication, this commitment, we now find without that you can't please God. God has no interest, no respect for those that do not walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 reads it like this, We walk by faith and not by sight. That quite frankly is likely the greatest temptation for the human family, isn't it? We want to do things that make sense to us. We want to do things that seemingly correspond to that which we expect. But yet God has always said it must be done by faith. Consider Joshua for just a moment. When Joshua was in fact told to surround the city of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6, what military sense does that make? Here was an enemy. They were surrounded by walls. It looks like we need to buy battering rams. It looks like we need to, in fact, have a repository of bows and arrows. Not so. Joshua, you march around the city once a day for six days. And then on that seventh day, march around it seven times and the walls will fall. Joshua by faith did it, and it happened just as God said. Now again, that seemingly made no sense, but it was by faith that it was done. You and I today can give thought to, of course, the eye of the modern day church and the characteristics of the plan of salvation and all that touches that which God has said. And by faith, we are absolutely convicted of it. This matter of faith as it's identified leads us to that next observation. I mentioned earlier that three times in the New Testament, this text is quoted. One by one, let's look at each one of them. The first occurrence we find in the opening chapter of the Roman letter. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Pausing at the close of verse 17. You notice identification has been made relative to God's power to save. It's the gospel. But in Paul's further elaboration, he said in verse 17, Faith to faith. Twice that word is employed. You'll notice it means that as you and I grow and develop in faith, it only leads to greater faith as we, of course, build it all upon the development and the revelation of God's Word. And then he says the just shall live by faith. What was true then in the days of Habakkuk is true in the days of ancient Rome. That those that are pleasing to God, those that highlight that way of life, are the only ones that will be pleasing to Him and the ones that, of course, walk by faith. You'll notice the very next verse, verse 18, the discussion changes negatively very fast. After highlighting the just walking by faith, he now says in verse 18, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven." against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And from that point all the way to verse 32, we have a statement, a description of those who chose not to walk by faith. And we also notice God's reaction to them. He gave them up to reprobate minds. He gave them up to, in fact, receive the seeds of their own destruction. It is a rather negative description. But we notice they didn't walk by faith. If you and I choose not to walk by faith with unwavering dedication to what God has decreed, you and I know what awaits us too. It'll be a sorriness attached to, of course, separation from God. No wonder that first passage only leads us to the next one. The next quotation is Galatians 3.11. Here, the same writer, the Apostle Paul, now in addressing the Galatian congregations, to them, he said again, Man's not justified by that law of Moses, but rather the just shall live by his faith. In the midst of a description allowing us to see what is different between the old law of Moses and that law of Christ, Paul highlights in such grandeur the fact that old law, though it served its purpose, it is not the means whereby the ultimate matter in faith was made known. The just shall live by his faith. That faith ultimately revealed in the nature of the goodness of God. You might notice that that takes you to the third one. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 and following, we find a description where one final time this quotation is found. You might notice what comes next in Hebrews 11, that marvelous description of faith now in chapter 10, he closes it by saying, Indeed, you and I, as we consider the just walking, living by faith, he highlights in distinction of what just went before it. Those that walked in immorality. Those that walked without discipline. Those that walked by the choices of their own mind apart from God. It is not an overstatement to say we live in an age and a time when it continues to be the temptation of man to fail the error of Jeremiah 10, 23. O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. These verses time and again seemingly point out to us faith requires that we have a tuned ear to listen to that which God has said. And we never try to exalt our own thoughts or feelings above it. The just shall live by his faith that which God has decreed. One final thought. It's interesting, isn't it, about the nature of the verb that the inspired writer used. Live by his faith. That's a present tense verb in an ongoing, lively way. Your faith and mine should be something that not only is a motivating factor on Sunday, it should be a guiding thought for Monday. It should be a tremendous appreciation for Tuesday. It in fact ought to be the key element for Saturday as well. You see, it should be the part of our life that is absolutely indispensable. For without Christ, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. Without Christ, we are without hope, Ephesians 2, 12. What about you and me then for tomorrow and the other days of the week? Is our devotion to this book such that it is inescapably a part of that which you and I are or ever hope to be? No wonder that it said the just shall live by his faith. As you and I turn the slide to the next one, the developments in fact even allow us to appreciate these things too. The next thought is this one. So worthy is it, it seemed natural to include it on a slide of its own the attribute of basic trustworthiness in the God of heaven. Revisit that text that was read earlier, and let's now put the first part of that verse in place, please. Habakkuk 2.4 reads, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. Who is the his that the inspired writer is referencing? His soul, that's a reference to ancient Babylon. This very people who one chapter earlier, God said, I'm going to raise them up and they are going to defeat my people, Judah. Now God quickly observes this fact. Habakkuk, that people, I'm not saying they're perfect. In fact, they're not. They're guilty of all kinds of things. And thus, he says, that soul that's lifted up, the one that's now going to enjoy military victory over my people, they're not upright as you and I think about that matter of uprightness. Look at these other verses drawn from our readings this past week that really seemingly join a chorus that's very powerful. What about the prophet Nahum? In the opening chapter of that book, verse 7, God knows those that are His. Question for me as well as all of you, does God know you? Now, I didn't ask whether you knew Him. Many men claim they know God, but He doesn't know them. I want to know, does God know you? Does He know your name and mine? Is your name and mine in such a high regard before Him that like Job, God can say, look at my faithful servant. Does God know you? That passage in Nahum 1-7 is quoted by Paul in, in 2 Timothy. Interestingly there, Paul highlights the fact God does still know those are His. A few verses earlier, Nahum 1.3, we find God described as a God who is of justice and of patience, and He never, ever acquits the wicked. Human courts do that all the time. A judge bangs the gavel and declares someone free when the man is as guilty as he could be. It was a loophole in the law or some other kind of feature or aspect that allowed him free, but God never, ever acquits the wicked. If you and I are wicked, rest assured, God knows it. And rest assured, there will be a judgment in regard to it. What about a third point, quickly? Sad to say about ancient Jerusalem, the very people of Judah... They had God's oracles, and they had God's prophets, and they had God's influence, but yet, note what God said about them. They had failed to trust me. They'd failed to trust me, Zephaniah chapter 3. What a sad reflection, what a sad commentary on a people that should have had faith, but they trusted in everything else. They trusted in Egypt, Assyria, their own idols, God said they didn't trust me. That kind of statement is, almost brings a tear down our face, doesn't it? Can you almost hear God in sadness with countenance fallen describing His own people this way? Not only had Jerusalem failed to trust Him, notice what immediately that meant. When they failed to trust Him, the immediate consequence, more sin. And today that's still true, isn't it? As soon as we replace trusting God with anything else, it just makes more sin. No wonder Jeremiah would say it like this in Jeremiah 2.13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, their sin one, And they've hewed them out, cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, their sin two. The very time that you and I fail to trust Him and replace anything with Him, we've committed two sins for the price of one. That's terrible, isn't it? Not only that, look at the next thought. The prophet Micah that we also read this week in Micah 6, 8, that high ethic that Jerusalem had so often failed. What doth he require of thee but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? And yet, time and time again, they had failed. You'll notice one last thing. What is it that God did require? What did He want? Zephaniah 3.9 I want a people of pure language. A people whose internal consistency is that of truthfulness and godliness and faith. That's what I want. And yet the people of Israel were not that way. May you and I be that way today. Purity of language, a lifestyle indicative of all that would be pleasing unto God. And with those thoughts, the closing part of our lesson this morning, very briefly. What do you notice, interestingly, about that statement in Habakkuk 2.4? This people that was upright, or that appeared to be the conquering ones, God says they're not upright. Notice how easily that allows us to speak about the circumstances of today. There are those who appear to be strong and who appear to be mighty and who appear, in fact, to have all in order. But yet, religiously, they're not strong. Religiously, they are not of faith. And as such, we know they're on the outside looking in of those in regard to the greatest blessings of God. Appearances can sometimes be deceiving when we allow them to be motivated by only what we see. Habakkuk needed to be reminded What God says is the truth. Babylon was coming, and he needed with courage to accept it. And thankfully, he did. No wonder those last comments challenge you and me today very seriously. The just shall live by his faith. What about your faith and mine again every day of the week? Not just Sunday mornings or Wednesday evenings, and not just Sunday evenings. What about a lively faith, such that it can be said the just shall live by his faith? Do you and I use that faith to help us make decisions tomorrow at work so that we do what's right? Does it allow us to make the choices in our personal lives, in our relationships with our spouses or children or otherwise? May we, with wisdom, be people who walk by faith and not by sight. I hope we've each been reminded that the thought of faithfulness, even from the days of the Old Testament, was a monumental thing. And even Habakkuk needed lessons concerning it. I trust today that those lessons can be very meaningful to you and to me as well. No one can ever hope to see God in heaven without faith. It's essential, Hebrews eleven six. 6. Today, if you're not a faithful member of the body of Christ, Why are you at this point in that position? It's clear you need to respond in a very open way to that which the the, the Bible has proclaimed. If we could be of help to you today, that plan of salvation initially describes these matters. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as the Son of God and you must be baptized. Those are a part of walking by faith. If you have attended to those needs at some point, but today you are not faithful, then like others in the Bible, God calls you to come back to your first love and to do so by confessing those errors if they're a matter of public matter and, of course, praying unto God as you repent of them. It is the case today that if you desire to be a person who lives and walks by faith, we'd like to pray with you and for you and to help you in any way that we can. But right now is a convenient opportunity if you need to come forward. Don't delay, but come at once while together we stand and while we sing.